there's not really an atheist soup kitchen and social group, and we don't gather for atheist vespers. <laughs> Allison Dennis, this is your mixtape. Let's call it Spacey Polyrhythms. <laughs> Allison Dennis grew up in various cities and towns in Oregon, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Her involvement in music started at a young age as she participated in church choirs and school band. She received a literature degree and some a cappella choir experience from Oberlin College in Ohio before moving to Portland, Oregon, where she has lived, with the exception of a short stint in New Orleans, for over a decade. Currently, she writes, records, and performs music under the name Dr. Something, and performs keyboards, sax, and vocals in the psych rock band All I Feel Is Yes, creates visual art, and works a mundane office job to pay the bills. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm super happy to have you. Uh, so why don't we get started at the beginning? You mentioned growing up in various cities and towns um, on the West Coast and in the Midwest, I guess, or yeah. Um, well, I definitely, I had uh, a childhood moving around a lot in general. Uh, I spent most of my childhood in Ohio, but um, I was born in Corvallis, Oregon, which is uh fairly small city um, in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, but uh, I only lived there for one year, so I really have no memories of it. Um, <laughs> Nothing particularly formative happened there, okay. <laughs> if, if it did, it's buried deeply in my subconscious. And uh, yes. so, yeah, about a year after that, uh, my family moved to Pennsylvania for a while, um, mainly it depended on like where my parents could find jobs. So we moved to a small town called Beaver, Pennsylvania, uh, a little ways outside of Pittsburgh. That's kind of where I have my first vague memories, but uh, not a whole lot. Um, <laughs> I remember there being a lot of snow. <laughs> but, uh, just a few years later, we moved back to um, Oregon. Uh, we lived in Aloha outside of Portland, Oregon for three, four years. And uh, because of uh, my dad's work, we moved to uh, Newark, Ohio, which is sort of central Ohio area. And then later to uh, Talmadge, Ohio, which is a town outside of Akron, Ohio. I went to school in Oberlin, Ohio. So mm. a lot of Ohio at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then uh, I moved uh back to the West Coast, uh, up to Portland. That is a lot of moving around. When you said moving around, you weren't joking. Like, you're bouncing back and forth between these states. Um, so uh, what kind of place did music have in your childhood? You, you mentioned church choirs and school bands. Yeah, I think that my first experience with music, uh, since my parents don't really play music at all, but they had a pretty extensive record collection. Uh, so a lot of my early music experience is just listening to the recorded music that they had around the house. Um, and also, um, I guess this goes hand in hand with the whole moving <laughs> all the time experience. I have very burned into my brain. Um, these, uh, my mom had a cassette tape of uh, the Beach Boys greatest hits and my dad had a cassette of the Drifters greatest hits and I I have vivid memories of moving cross country listening to both of those cassettes over and over again <laughs> no doubt I mean that's a perfect segue to your first song uh, which is by the Drifters uh, so this song is up on the roof I climb way up to the top of the stairs and all my cares just drift right into space funny in that it's it's a song that's uh you know all about getting away from the city life which at that point i really hadn't lived in a big city <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think for me it was a lot about uh, i was a very spacey child and so i liked being able to just kind of like be somewhere that was a little bit kind of in nature or outdoors but being able to just kind of space out and enjoy yeah yeah <laughs> just um existing and um it's always it's a ridiculously catchy song it's uh one of carol king and jerry goffin's songs that they wrote um uh, 
in the famous Brill building. And so it's a ridiculously catchy song. And it was during the Benny King era of the Drifters. So that's always the best era of the Drifters. I, I guess the, the other uh, relationship I have with this song is um, at the time we lived in Aloha, uh, my grandparents lived on the coast um, in Garibaldi, Oregon. And so we used to take trips to my grandmother's house. And so we'd always be listening to these tapes on the way to my grandparents' house. So I also have a lot of association of the drifters and the beach. And they also had a lot of songs mm -hmm. about the beach. So, <laughs> Yeah. I'm not really very familiar with the drifters. Um I mean, obviously, you mentioned the Beach Boys and the Drifters, uh, mm -hmm. which makes me want to group them together. Um, similar? Yes? No? There's definitely a, there's definitely a similarity in um, mm -hmm. you know, the Beach Boys were a little bit later, I guess, but pretty similar era of you know early to mid-60s. Uh, the Drifters also were kind of like, um, I guess, Menudo before Menudo was a thing. And that it was a band that changed lineups all the time. They were a vocal group who, you know... They had different songwriters. Did each new member come with a uh, expiration date, a la Menudo? Or? <laughs> I, I think it was probably a little less youth culture oriented than, than that. But uh, it's one of those bands though, that has kind of existed forever, but their heyday was really, you know, early 60s. So it's a similar era, and I think in a way similar, you know, type of songwriting in that it's it's very melodic, very hooky. Yeah. Um songwriting and a lot of vocal harmonies mm -hmm. it's interesting because i listen to your music as dr something but i don't know you particularly well as a person so when i was listening to these songs in preparation for this podcast uh listening to this one i couldn't help but recognize or to me it felt like there's something similar in this music and the kind of music that you write there's something about the rhythm mm -hmm. and the phrasing do you think that's correct or am i reaching there I, I do think that's very much correct um i think especially with uh in terms of the beach boys that's something where my mom has been obsessed with beach boys forever so i'm sure i even was hearing that in the womb <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but just that that kind of songwriting has mm -hmm. definitely influenced uh Without even thinking about it, I think there's a lot of that kind of pop songwriting, uh, the pattern recognition. Um, I, I have a lot of that without even really thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have this sort of pet theory, which seems just a little bit too wacky for me to mention all that often. But I feel like there's certain rhythms that you hear a lot in your childhood that just get really deeply in there. And, <laughs> and I don't know. Yeah, something about that. Something about repeated childhood exposure to certain rhythmic forms. <laughs> like, I don't Definitely, know. Definitely. <laughs> I, I, that theory sounds sound to me. <laughs> <laughs> so this song is about getting away from the world and escaping to a private space. And you spoke a little bit about how you were a little bit of... Um, I believe you were used the word spacey, um, mm -hmm. but uh, it's it's not like a hidden place. It's it's about going to sort of an inaccessible vantage point from which you can view the mm. world. You think that's meaningful, or I definitely think so. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, that was a really poorly yeah. phrased question. Like observation, <laughs> comment. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it does sound pretty accurate. I I, I definitely have a lot of vivid. Uh, memories, especially from the era of my childhood, being in Oregon. There's mm -hmm. a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of just like staring at the sky and the clouds and the different cloud patterns in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's there's a lot of cloud patterns that look um, almost somewhat ominous, um, <laughs> but also very beautiful. And so I do have kind of memories of listening to music, that song and others, and just, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking about staring at the sky. Mm hmm. So yeah. that is a very spacey answer. <laughs> no, it's it's quite appropriate. Um, I mean, it fits the vibe of the song, and it, and it fits the sort of biographical details you've given us so far. So do you revisit the song very often as an adult? To be honest, uh, until you asked this question, I hadn't listened to it for a while. I think in younger adulthood, I definitely listen to the song every every so often. But it's definitely been at least probably five years, I think, since I've listened to it <laughs> um, at, at this point, since I've re-listened to it for this podcast. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talk about being in the back of the car and, you know, hearing that Beach Boys tape and that Drifters tape over and <laughs> over again. Those songs kind of live inside of us. I mean, you don't have to hear them because you can hear them in your head, should you choose, I guess. Mm -hmm. like... That is very true. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great. So um, I'm just wondering a bit more about the um, musical experiences you had in those church choirs and school bands. Uh, I know you play piano. I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you play other instruments. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your history as a musician. I definitely first came to music from singing in choir. So I uh, came to it vocally first mm-hmm. and then also just playing some uh a recorder at school. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone must learn recorder, but few take to it. <laughs> like... Yes, that that is true. I I really loved it, and I still play mm-hmm. recorder. <laughs> I think it did help too that my introduction to school band. I was playing the clarinet, and so I kind of continued the whole uh, woodwind love affair, <laughs> which uh, uh, also kept me playing recorder. But yeah, I first came to music vocally and I'm to this day it's really the only thing I'm good at at sight reading, uh, at reading music for. I, I took about six months of piano lessons as a child and um, I had a very frustrated teacher because uh, oh, no. I, I mostly was figuring things out that he was playing by ear and I wasn't really learning how to read the music and it was very frustrating to him. <laughs> you and Tori Amos. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I, yeah. I can imagine some stodgy old teacher being very frustrated. Yeah, I didn't realize that Tori Amos also had that <laughs> That's why she got kicked out of the music conservatory because oh. she, she wouldn't read the, read sight music she'd learn it all by ear <laughs> she she certainly did fine after that <laughs> she did all right for herself i heard a similar story about dave brubeck as well oh, that yeah? he, he was faking his way through and then like one of his professors one of his teachers found out or something and was like you need to learn music and now I can't remember the rest of the story. It was similar, though. It was like, yeah, he somehow was faking his way through the music conservatory without ever learning to read music. Well, I mean, that's kind of great. Those, those are two excellent compatriots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I definitely, I, I can't, uh, I can't claim the same chops as either of them, but, <laughs> but I continued to play. I, I uh, luckily we, we, we had a piano for a long time, which was very nice. And so I was able to, I kind of figured out by ear the chords and arpeggios and scales and and so I was able to sort of reverse engineer being able to play piano, mm-hmm. um, though I definitely kind of feel a little unqualified in terms of, you know, I don't really have proper chops or training, <laughs> but I play it. I play it still. So <laughs> how many people who play guitar and rock bands are formally trained in guitar? I mean, you know, <laughs> we should we should be kind towards uh, amateur pianists. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really interesting that you talked about how you came to music primarily as a vocalist and that you still feel kind of most in your own wheelhouse as a vocalist, I suppose, because uh, the next track you have for us is a choral piece. That's right. How's your Latin? Uh, it's it's not great. I did actually look up the translation because <laughs> I was remembering my Latin and my uh, memory of performing the song is such that I could sort of remember it's kind of like, hey, shepherds who did you see what did you see out there uh was it the baby jesus <laughs> that, that's my um artistic translation of uh, this song it's called quim vidistis pastores so it's basically who did you see shepherds <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who did you see, Shepherds? By Francis. Uh, uh, Francis Poulon. Yes, thank you. Your French is way better than mine. It was a choral piece that I sang in my church choir at the time. I I graduated around middle school to the adult choir, and I was like the only person in the adult choir who wasn't over 40, I'm guessing. (laughs) But it was a really cool experience for me. I feel very lucky to have um, approached music from an early age in the context of performance and in making music with a social group, which I think is becoming rarer and rarer, especially with school programs, school arts programs being cut everywhere. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's 
it's very special in a culture where music is often thought of as something that's very top down, something that's from somewhere else or something that a record company puts out that you consume. I'm really glad that I was able to have formative experiences um, with people of like all kinds of ages. Creating music as a, as a, as a social practice, as opposed to just music being something that that I buy or that I consume. Thinking about, I mean, I sometimes think about how music existed in the world before it was so easily consumed basically before recording, but especially before digital sort of music. Because at this point now, music is an intensely private sort of thing. It, it comes through your, your headphones. Uh, and even in, in the vinyl era, like if you put a record on, the whole house had to hear it, you know? But yeah, I guess Poulenc is a bit, he's 20th century. And I read that he really embraced recording uh, as soon as it was really um, practicable too. So it doesn't really apply to him. But, you know, you think about you think about the way music would have existed in the 19th century and before, where you know, basically it had to be performed. And so it was quite useful to have some musical skill to be able to sing or play an instrument, uh, you know, and that, that's music had to be sort of made that way unless you were going to a concert hall or something. But music in the home was performed communal music, you know? That was a long rambling way to basically say I agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, interesting concept and to think about how different the experience of music is now versus, you know, just a little over a century ago. Uh, even thinking about, uh, especially now too, uh, with streaming services, a lot of like listening to music feels like strapping on a feed bag. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's music time versus like, it's not about the specific piece or the performers yeah, yeah. or or the work that it takes to make it. It's just like, oh, it's a utility that I turn on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like flicking on a light switch. <laughs> so you discovered this through the the choir that you were part of uh, when you which you joined. I believe you said after middle school or at the start of middle school. Uh, I think I was in seventh grade, so uh, the middle of middle of middle school. Yeah. Like 13-ish. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> cool. Awesome. So this was just something that you guys performed. Were you familiar with Poulenc before then? Or? I was not at all. So uh, I think that's part of why this piece really stuck with me. It was something I was completely unfamiliar with. And um, it's kind of surprising, too, that he's such a modern composer, but um, he draws from like a lot of like old Gallic chant music and like plain song music so it was also it's a it was a very challenging piece in that the meter keeps changing there's like single measures where the the time signature changes and i think it's because he was drawing from this uh you know old european plain song where nothing is really metered so yeah, like the way yeah. it's written out in modern music notation is like very tricky <laughs> so it was a piece that's like it sits with me because it was difficult to learn so i had to you know spend a lot of time with it um practicing and rehearsing it. Uh, but it was also very beautiful. And it had this weird ancient sound to it, despite being a fairly modern piece. Uh, I think he wrote it in the 50s or 60s. I read Poulenc's Wikipedia article, Look at Me Go. Mm, all right. <laughs> and it talks about how um, in his earlier career, he was sort of seen as somewhat lighthearted as a composer mm -hmm. um and then but he did all this religious work as well that came later on and mm -hmm. it was i read someone i should have written down who said it described him as part monk and part bad boy <laughs> and i was trying to think about whether this was the monk or the bad boy we we're hearing now yeah. because it is i guess it's religious but it, it yeah. is very sort of sprightly and playful and interesting you know like mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I think too. There's there's a lot of texture to it that's very modern. Like the the actual harmonic textures, very modern sounding, and kind of oh, I'm getting away with this weird thing in this, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of based on this very sort of like staid religious chant. <laughs> so, are you or were you a classical music nerd? <laughs> I was in that it, I wasn't. I don't have quite the right formal background for it, other than I guess the church choir was obviously formal choral training. Uh, so that was somewhat of an entry to it. And I think, too, in the era of, of CDs, um, it it's very funny, but in the era of CDs, 
classical recording took off really well. Suddenly you had a media that could um, support all kinds of different frequency ranges at like much wider uh, volumes, uh, much wider dynamics. And so there was an explosion in a lot of uh, um, classical recordings around that time. And you could find these things in the bargain bin for like four bucks or something. <laughs> and so I also just, I started just collecting all these classical music CDs. So that was part of it too. It was also really easy to find um, a lot of classical music at the library and I was a big library nerd. So I definitely got into a lot of stuff. A lot of what I liked too, that was fairly modern, but I liked a lot of neo-romantics like Rachmaninoff because it, it was something where it was very melodic and I could sort of, there's something to grasp onto easily, but it also a lot of aspects that were very weird. It was like, we're, we're just starting to think about polyrhythms and uh, mixing different key signatures and um, a lot of that fun modern stuff. <laughs> yeah. Again, Wikipedia coming to the rescue. <laughs> Polanco was um, a follower of Satie, right? Like, mm -hmm. totally, that totally fits with what you're saying there. This is from when you were in your early teen years and you're in the choir. Uh, I'm wondering what, I mean, you described yourself as a library nerd as well. Um, what was going on in your life when you were at this age, let's say, or around then, in your teens? Yeah. I think it was a couple of years later, I actually got a part-time job at the local library, but um, oh, awesome! <laughs> the, it was pretty much the best high school job I could have asked for. But uh, yeah, I, was, I just liked hanging out at the library. I also lived in uh, the town of Talmadge, Ohio at the point where there's not a lot to do yeah. <laughs> other than extracurriculars and hanging out at the library and going to Bob's Big Boy and ordering a coffee all night. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds very similar to my own teen years. Go yeah, on. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think, too, it was around the time, you know, that the Internet was obviously um, uh, in most households at the time, but we still had dial-up, and uh, I think a lot of people still did at the time. And uh, there's also not quite the same treasure trove of information on the internet <laughs> that there is now, although uh, not all that information is <laughs> not Correct valuable. or useful. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it was still of the era where going to the library was a very fascinating thing. You know, you yeah. could find so much information that you couldn't find elsewhere. Okay, you're working at the library. You're in a small town in Ohio. Is this the one that's near Akron? Yes. Yeah. Okay. About how far out, out of town? Like it wasn't. It wasn't a distance you could travel as a teen. Not until um, I I could drive. It wasn't too long a drive because it, it it was like right up against Akron. But there's also not really that much to do in Akron, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. The glittering metropolis of Akron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we all have our metropoles. I guess Akron was yours. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So why don't we move on to your next song? Although I should ask you, was there anything else about your teen years or Poulenc that you wanted to talk about? I guess maybe just, just uh, I think sometimes, especially in Portland, you know, I meet a lot of people who don't necessarily have like a religious background. And it's kind of interesting that to think about the fact that my uh, much of my musical training was from growing up in the church, and and in my teen years, I was pretty like pretty into going to church, <laughs> and uh, I think choir was a big part of that too. And uh, we had a pretty like close knit youth group, but it was one of those things that was always there's a lot of tension to it as well. I think in that it was something that felt it, it was very meaningful and very important to like my experience of community at the time. But it was one of those interesting things where this, I guess I keep branching off into like sociological phenomena. No, that's <laughs> and great. How I experienced them. But an interesting thing was I, I went to this Presbyterian church. Um, so it was very, you know, mainline Protestant and very, very sort of community oriented versus like having a personal savior or personal relationship with Jesus. So it was a little less like that than say an evangelical church, though I also kind of grew up uh, within a, a milieu that was <laughs> steeped in even evangelical religion. Um, uh, Talmadge, Ohio uh, is very, 
very evangelical. <laughs> I was going to ask you if that was your family or if that was Ohio. So it was Ohio. <laughs> so much, yeah, much more Ohio. And then my family, you know, we, we went to a Presbyterian church. And so it, it felt very theologically different mm-hmm. from the evangelical ethos, though. But we, we had a couple of youth pastors in the youth group who were much more from that evangelical background. And I think it's partly because of, you know, it's around that time period that mainline Christianity is kind of dwindling. It's all of mostly older folks who still go to those churches. And uh, so a lot of mainline churches were hiring youth pastors who were coming out of these um, evangelical colleges. Uh, And so it was kind of interesting that like the theology in church felt very different from the theology that we were getting in youth group. Um, I also took up guitar around my teen years, and in a way it was kind of helpful because it was something that I used to play in the youth group, and so it gave me a chance to practice and learn guitar. Uh, But I always really... I didn't like the songs we sang in youth group very much, you know, they're very just like... They were very um, vineyardy, which uh, I guess Vineyard is a music publishing company. Uh, it's not, I guess, not a lot of people will get that reference. It's no, a music I, publishing I was imagining, company. Imagine something very different when you said it was Vineyardy. <laughs> okay. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not wine drinking music, but uh, Vineyard is a music. Uh, an evangelical Christian music publishing company, and so they. They publish a lot of the music that's sung in like mega churches and by like you know praise bands with the whole, with, with guitars and drums. <laughs> so the the musical criticism of these songs you don't like these songs was it because <laughs> of the of the sort of like lyrical contact or was it just because like musically they were nowhere near as interesting as uh, Poulenc? <laughs> To be honest, at the time, I think it was mostly a musical aesthetic (laughs) that I didn't like. Where's your polyrhythms? Yeah. (laughs) You were kind of seriously religious, though, theologically as well. Like, you were a believer when you were a teenager. Yes. It's one of those things, too, that, like, socially I was very liberal, but I also, I pretty much did, yeah, believe in Christianity and Jesus. (laughs) Do Do you still? Not really. <laughs> I, I think they're, that they're valuable stories. And I think that uh, the one thing I miss the most about being, you know, having a religion and practicing a religion is the built-in community around it. Because I think in, you know, there there's not really an atheist soup kitchen and social group, and we don't gather for atheist vespers. <laughs> I'm thinking about how you're talking about so much of your musical education came from being active in Mm -hmm. a church and how earlier we were talking about how music programs and schools are really falling by the wayside Mm -hmm. as everything gets stripped back and how in the United States, as far as I can tell, and this, this happens in Canada too. I shouldn't, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't, I should not have the Canadian sneer going on. We're not, (laughs) we're not doing so great either. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, churches have to pick up the slack of what governments ought to be doing. (laughs) That's very true. Yeah. So it makes it kind of um, materially and socially difficult to not be a believer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't we move on to your next song? So um, you ended up going to college, to Oberlin College. I'm I'm going to assume your third song is from your college years, yeah? My third song was actually uh, from just after I had graduated from college. I think part of the problem I had with choosing a college song is just that, like, there's so many different things I was listening to at the time that I was kind of like, ah, I can't choose. Five five songs is really mean. (laughs) So we're going to move on to your next track now. And that is um, Starting Five by Dios Malos, Malos in parentheses. Yeah, it's it's a band that was just called Dios uh, mm-hmm. originally, but they got sued by Ronnie James Dio. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's why. Okay. So they add a little, little parenthetical malos <laughs> after it. Uh. <laughs> I was listening to this um, uh, with my husband, uh, and when he had not heard of Dios malos before, and he's like, "Oh, it means gods, bad ones." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> which I really like. It's, it's a very funny name. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just calling your band Dios is pretty funny to start with. And then it's pretty genius that they just added. <laughs> They're bad gods. All right. So what era of your life are we um, visiting now? So this is kind of right after I had graduated from college and was basically applying for jobs and not getting any jobs and feeling very depressed. And uh, I, I had moved to Portland uh, did you move to Portland straight out of college? Like, was that your plan, leaving college? Um, I kind of just didn't even have a plan. That was part of the <laughs> issue. Um, and I had applied to some jobs in Northeast Ohio, but yeah, nothing was really formulating. And, Do you mind uh, me asking what year you graduated college? 2004. Okay, right on. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I was, it Not, was like, wasn't dread 2007, the worst year to graduate college. No, so. 2004 was pretty bad, I actually. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> I think it too, too, like, I basically moved from the Rust Belt to Portland, which are basically the two places where the recession had already been happening for like a decade <laughs> yeah. before the the big one hit. Okay, you, you grew up in an economically challenged area and you moved to a different economically challenged area yes. <laughs> and you uh, you've got your um literature degree i believe you said yes it was a degree in german language and literature so oh, wow. there's not much to do with that other than teach and at that point i had no interest in being part of academia anymore <laughs> oh, god i know that song <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and my family had actually moved back to Portland, uh, okay. which it's kind of funny. My my parents both grew up in Portland. Um, my mom was born in Portland, and um, most of my extended family lives here. Uh, so it was also just a place where oh, I could move to Portland. I have family there. I can stay with and well while I get my shit together. You're still quite young. So, I mean, the support network <laughs> of a family is important. I mean, yes. it always is, but particularly mm -hmm. then. Yes, definitely. Uh, but it, yeah, it took a long time to even get uh, a job scooping ice cream. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which I worked for a while. Uh, I was kind of doing that and then doing like part-time data entry at the same time. Uh, but this song is from when I was still looking for any work whatsoever and not getting anything. This is a song that I actually, um, between applying for jobs, I spent a lot of time just wasting time on on music message boards. Um, and so this is something that I discovered through that venue, you know, just people talking about bands they were listening to. And um, I really liked them. I also, I kind of found out after the fact that uh, they, uh, they toured a bit with the band Granddaddy, which is a band I was very obsessed with in college. I almost chose one of their songs, but I also was very conflicted about college music. <laughs> like, which one do I choose? They're another band where um, I think they even talk a lot about how influenced they are by the Beach Boys. So it kind of goes, goes back around to <laughs> my original exposure to, um, you know, just sort of chamber pop music, very uh, poppy music. Strong vocal lines. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this song in particular, um, I just, I listened to a lot, it a lot uh, on my disc man <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> while, while running. I used to just go and run and, you know. That thing must have had skip protection. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's very funny. I was talking to a friend recently about how the Discman perfected skip protection like two years before the iPod came out. Yeah. <laughs> I think they had those giant iPods before then, but before the iPod became like smaller and more affordable, you know, so it's... <laughs> Non-denominational MP3 player is what I had for a while. So Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you'd listen to this while running. And I think, it, I guess it goes back to this whole spacey thing, too. It was a nice thing to just kind of, like, listen to this song. It's, it's very peppy and kind of sporty. It even says starting five, which is a sports reference to um, the starting basketball lineup. Um, okay. I didn't catch that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, I guess it goes along with the running, even though I hate running so much. But it, it, it weirdly was a very refreshing thing at the time because it's like, oh, I can go do this thing and feel like I'm being productive yes. without actually like thinking about jobs and 
<laughs> what I should be doing. As someone who's very into physical fitness, um, you can absolutely trick your brain into squirting some reward chemical for doing <laughs> work, even if it's not producing anything of value. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm actually really interested in this as a running song. I, I don't run anymore, but when I used to, music was extremely important. Mm. And I, at first, this must be the testosterone talking, I would want really <laughs> aggressive stuff to keep me, ah, mm -hmm. but when I sort of clued in on the fact that if I got more chill stuff, I wouldn't wear myself out and I mm. could just sort of lope along endlessly, like at a more relaxed, mm. but still running pace. It's like, yeah. oh. I don't want to sort of like burst my adrenal glands. I want to sort of chill out <laughs> while I run. Okay. So I can totally see this because this is a, I mean, it has a it's, bit of a propulsion to it, but it's kind of mm -hmm. chill. You know? It's mid-tempo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, and it's not, it's not too dense. And it has those screaming children in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like too that like the lyrics are just kind of like silly and sarcastic too. Uh, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it sounds good and it's, it's, yeah, it's got a momentum to it without being like, too intense. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting because um, I get the feeling from our conversation so far that your approach to music is not exclusively, but fairly strongly coming in from a actual sort of music point of view versus say lyrical content like you know you're listening to um harmonies and and melodies and and rhythms and and thinking about things like that um is lyrical content really important to you um i think you're correct yeah seeing that i it's i'm very much a music first person i can i think lyrics are important in that if they're bad enough to be distracting i won't i might not like a song <laughs> Uh, and if they're really good, it definitely enhances a song. But it's, yeah, it's definitely not the first thing that I enjoy about music. And it's not like, a, it's usually not a make or break thing about a song. Yeah. When you're writing your own songs, do you, do you find the music comes first and then the lyrics? Yeah, definitely. A yeah. lot of times I have like, uh, I'm actually currently working on a new project where I, I still have two songs that uh, I've written all the music for like months ago and I'm still trying to pound out lyrics. I think part of it too, though, in terms of my own writing, uh, I find it a lot more easy to be embarrassed about lyrics than music because <laughs> music is so abstract. Mm -hmm. Whereas like lyrics, anyone who speaks English is going to know whether I wrote good or bad lyrics, I guess. <laughs> I mean, there's that it's, it's subjective to a point, but it's also, uh, you know, if something sounds cliche, everyone's going to know it's a cliche versus like musical cliches are a little less easy to pin down unless someone mm -hmm. has musical training. Yeah. The semantics of music are always sort of less direct. A sentence is a sentence and it, it can be a very naked way of expressing something. Whereas mm -hmm. if you wrote an instrumental piece, Let's say you had you felt really sad over something you were kind of embarrassed about feeling sad about. You could write an instrumental piece expressing that sadness, and no one need know it was because you dropped your ice cream cone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes it more universal too. In that, yeah. like you, mm -hmm. you you can automatically make a person feel something, and it does doesn't necessarily have to be something related to their to it you don't necessarily have to have had the same experience to relate. Yeah, yeah. It's like just having the same emotion. I think too, yeah, like language and poetry is always going to be symbolic. Like you can't, to a degree, you can make abstract words, but for the most part, there's going to be some symbolic weight to a word because just that's just how, like, that's just how uh, semiotics works. So why don't we move on to your next song? I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. This artist has been brought up as a almost chose a song by about <laughs> three times in this podcast history, but no one's yet chosen a song by her. Oh, wow. So um, why don't you tell our listeners what we're going to talk about? Um, this next one is Mushrooms and Roses by Janelle Monet. Yay! Bring us up to date. Um, what's going on in your life between these two songs, and where are we now? 
So at this point, um, my my initial introduction to Janelle Monet was actually in my late twenties. I had this subscription to Paste magazine, and it's funny they had this feature on her, and they also had like this CD that came with the magazine that had samples of songs that they were featuring, uh, and it had "Many Moons" from uh, her first EP, "The Chase Suite." Oh, I love that track, um, and it's so good. And I was just immediately immediately drawn in uh especially by that combo organ sound oh it's so good and there's there's the pointer <laughs> sisters reference yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's just so brilliant it was like this is someone that i really need to follow um and it was the next year which at that point um i had spent much of the previous year in new orleans uh so i'd first heard about janelle monet when i was still in portland and i moved to new orleans for a little under a year and then like shortly after i came back was when the arc android came out and it's kind of funny for this era i almost chose single ladies by beyonce but i i ended up not doing it because it's not a song that i really love i it's a fun song i like it but it's not like a really important song for me but i i almost chose it because um my time in new orleans i was working with um a rebuild organization uh because my sister was working with the organization and uh i once again found myself out of a job and i didn't know what to do my sister was like you can come work with us so i moved to new orleans for (laughs) the better part of a year so you were helping to rebuild after katrina yes Wow. Okay. And so this was in 2009, but there were still tons of rebuild going on. It's been ridiculously long process. It's also, you know, looking at uh, Houston and Puerto Rico right now too. Those efforts are going to be going on for the good part of a decade, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah, the kind of destruction that's happening is uh very very immense uh a lot of what our group did as well is doing uh rebuild for people who slip through uh the cracks for more official means of rebuild uh and so a lot of times it's people who were uh defrauded by contractors oh no so they basically uh fema was just cutting checks to people being like, here's your money, build a house or rebuild your house on your lot. And, you know, it's people who have had these houses in their families for generations. They don't know how much building a house should technically cost. And so a lot of times, you know, without any training of what things should cost and uh, recommendations of contractors, people are just paying these contractors up front for work. They come in, do a little bit of work, especially on the front of the house and run with the money. And so we had, it's very sad. We had a lot of people who had gotten FEMA money to rebuild their houses, but uh, they got abandoned by their contractors who stole their money. So there's a lot of that too. It's like stuff where like stuff was sort of starting to be rebuilt and then (laughs) just uh, corruption got in the way. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. To bring this back to our discussion of music was I mean, I'm just trying to think about single ladies. Did, did you? Was that a New Orleans song? <laughs> Not so much a New Orleans song. Uh, obviously, Beyonce's from Houston, so it's kind of like of that. Uh, a lot of her, you know, influence comes from that general area. But mm-hmm. um, more, more importantly, it was a very optimist era for me. Uh, in that, it was a lot of time on work sites, you know, just listening to top forty radio which is just uh, it, not not my usual thing. And uh, I don't dislike all top 40 songs, but it's not definitely, it's generally not my jam. Uh, we might have some listeners who don't know what poptimism is. So Poptimism is generally a trend in music journalism. Uh, it's kind of what more widely used to, to uh, refer to having a positive or critically positive view of popular uh, music and like top 40 type pop. So I was listening to a lot of that stuff. And one of the songs that was on the radio all the time was Single Ladies at the time. It also kind of, it's one of those things where I didn't make a direct connection at the time. But looking back, most of the people that I worked with were were, were women. So it was like a lot of ladies doing construction work. And, you know, all these younger single ladies doing, you know, try, trying to do good work and form camaraderie. I made a lot of really amazing friends uh, while doing that work. And um, so part of me wanted to, I think, 
choose that song just because of that that particular symbolic link. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've kind of backdoored in a sixth song here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right. I'm just I'm, and I'm sort of like I, I'm I'm glad that you described that era in your life because it sounds significant. Uh, so you you discovered Janelle before this. Yeah, yeah, and so I think tangentially, I mean Janelle Monet is not. So super mainstream, not to the point of Beyonce, certainly, but but it's also, I think, more in that genre of uh, popular and more R&B-influenced music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, it was a little like that, but, it, but much weirder, which is what I like, you know? <laughs> and so, when the Arc Android came out, I just fell in love with it and listened to it all the time. It was like the summer of I think it came out spring of 2010. And so all that summer, I listened to it uh, all the time. And uh, I really love mushroom, Mushrooms and Roses because it's it's super psychedelic and uh you know it's it's kind of poppy it's kind of r&b but it's also just um her guitarist uh kalindo parker uh is amazing and he has this very sort of he sounds very eddie hazel influenced to me uh eddie hazel played guitar with um parliament parliament funkadelic and various iterations <laughs> thereof and so it's it's such a spacey sounding song which i really love um i think too i didn't really mention earlier but my parents had you know a ton of beatles music so from a very young age i was listening to like lucy in the sky with diamonds and so i've always really loved you know songs that feel that you know just feel like they'll fall apart at any moment they're just like really bizarre with lyrics that are kind of arcane sounding i'm I'm laughing a little bit because i from a young age have always really enjoyed music that's associated with drugs even though i myself Mm -hmm. do not really partake yeah (laughs) i I, I, i'm pretty much the same way i mean i've done a little experimentation but i'm not that big into it but i love yeah i love listening to psychedelic music (laughs) i love like super trippy sounding music Mm -hmm. i I have in my notes here because i'm i'm also a big fan and i think the arc android is just a masterpiece of an album mm-hmm. um but it's if people haven't heard it i mean go out and listen to it but it's it's full of genre experiments i guess or it's just very stylistically diverse from song to song is probably a better way to put it so um and i i wrote that this one really seems to click with what i know of your aesthetic uh, i guess that's kind of what you've been saying there that this unlike something like tightrope or cold war or whatever this this kind of sounds like the other songs that you've chosen in some ways like yeah yeah i definitely th- i definitely think so yeah it's it's a very dreamy aesthetic it's um and uh it like it's it's very melodic yeah so the arc android's a concept album um are you into those yes <laughs> the, the funny thing too is that um uh shortly before it came out um i was in a the first iteration of Dr. Something was called Dr. Something and the Pop and Fresh Love Engines. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Which we later changed to the Pipe and Hot Love Engines because we got into some issues with uh, the Pillsbury Corporation for use of <laughs> the words Pop and Fresh. <laughs> you got a letter from a lawyer one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very funny. Like, we didn't even get a cease and desist letter, but we couldn't create a Facebook page when I tried to do it. It basically there was an already like we got some sort of message via facebook like this email saying you cannot create account with that name because puff and fresh is a registered trademark of the pillsbury corporation <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> like this is bizarre <laughs> So go on. You're 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 describing this band in particular. Uh, we just had a lot of songs about robots and uh, the idea of like robot love and uh, just sort of novelty songs about <laughs> the relationship of uh, AI and humanity. And so it was one of those things where it's like, oh, this is what I write about too. But it was also executed in a very different way. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of. 
I was going to say it's an allegory, but then I don't know if it is. Like, I don't、mm. want to reduce it in any kind of a way.、Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's taking it quite seriously. It's probably too much to go into here.、Um, this sort of complicated backstory that she's created for this album, which is、mm-hmm. a continuation of that EP you mentioned earlier,、yes. and which gets carried over into the following album. She has a new one coming out, and、uh, I only learned this morning. She's not Cindy Mayweather anymore. So I guess the,、um, the concept is gone now. The, the idea that she's a, you know, an escaped leader of an android rebellion and, and android love,、uh, robot <laughs> love is queer love and、yeah. all that stuff. I don't know. I, I, guess,、huh. I guess that's gone by the wayside.、Um, that's, that's interesting. I, I almost kind of wonder how much of that is about like, being more, because、uh, it seems like her more recent stuff is more upfront about queerness. Yeah. And le- less coded. She's still dodging But, the question yeah, in a very interesting way.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, yeah absolutely. Like any, any reader who's just a little bit careful like, can、mm-hmm. read it quite clearly, right?、Mm-hmm. I would agree. I really like the Arc Android, and I've always enjoyed this song. But I've never, this is one of the ones that I've never sort of scrutinized before. The lyric, I never even noticed it before, but、uh, we're all virgins to the joys of loving without fear.、Mm-hmm. It's like, Just another really powerful statement of like queer liberation and resistance. I, I can't believe this song sort of slipped my ears by before because that's one of my favorite things about Janelle's sort of body of work is that it is very much about living one's weird little truth, you know? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I have a bad tendency sometimes to monologue. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops. No, it's, it's definitely a very good observation. And、uh, <laughs> I do think that's, that's, a, that's a lyric that always stood out to me, too, because I, I think, too,、um, gosh, particularly in that era, <laughs> I'd mostly just had a lot of really, you know, mostly just like really awful experiences with, with sex and relationships or,、uh, you know, just like stuff that, Never felt right. <laughs> and so it was just this, it, it, it felt like such a liberating song. This, this, this idea that we're all kind of trapped, but there is an ideal to work toward of not having that kind of fear and baggage. Yeah. I can remember the first time I heard Cold War and、um, I'm trying to find my peace. I was made to believe there's something wrong with me. Like, oh.、Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like there's, there's、mm-hmm. something really important going on in, the, like, in, this, in this album. These songs will be heard by the people who need to hear them, and that certain ears are sensitive to certain things, I guess. I don't know.、Mm-hmm. We're going to move on to your final track, which is Control Freak by Counterfeit Madison. Hustle and bustle, kick and scream, but to the wildest in the air. I have to say, I had not heard this artist before, and it blew me away. This is so、oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> she's a, incredible.、Uh, and it's, this is another one that I, I basically just figured out about it on the internet. <laughs> But、um, John Darnell from、uh, The Mountain Goats. Um, I follow him on Twitter, and、uh, they had played with Counterfeit Madison, I think, when they were touring through Ohio. He just posted a video and was like, This band is amazing. I immediately like, downloaded two of her EPs off of Bandcamp. You know, I bought two EPs, and、uh, this song is from her latest album she released just recently. And it's kind of funny, she's from. Columbus, Ohio, obviously fairly new. So、uh, I wouldn't have been aware when I was in Ohio. <laughs> I, I don't know if she grew up in Ohio, but she is like in her late 30s, I think.、Hmm. Um, so I, probably growing up around the same time you were there. I mean, you're a little bit younger than that, but. Oh, thereabouts, yeah. Similar milieu. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's really interesting because I was reading some interviews with her. Because I, 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 I researched this podcast, obviously, but because this one was like, oh my God, like I kind of dove、mm-hmm. a little deeper than I ordinarily <laughs> would on this one. Because I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be adding this to my, to my phone. <laughs> like, oh, that's great. Yeah.、Um, and she talks about, she thinks that it's pretty obvious from her music that she 
she grew up playing in churches a lot. <laughs> so did you. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, especially the this particular song, too. There's a, a, a lyric that uh, the vocals are a little obscured, but you could tell that she keeps um, repeating uh, the bit from the serenity par- prayer. It's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change those things that I can. I think I'm getting that right. <laughs> I, I certainly heard her repeat over and over again, accept the things I can't change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the part that's kind of a, a, a refrain in this song, uh, which, yeah, immediately kind of took me back to like, oh, yeah, we both have that religious upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I kind of love it because... Okay, every song that we've heard so far on this episode has been fairly controlled and contained. Mm. I mean, even if it's sort of relaxed and breezy, it's, um, you know, it's not, the needle's not going into the red. (laughs) And she totally freaks out at the end of this Mm -hmm. song. And it's about freaking out over being a control freak, which is just perfect. (laughs) Like, it's losing control over this fact that you are a control freak. Yeah, I love it. Do you relate to this song? Are you a control freak? Or? Yeah, I think I think I do a lot. <laughs> I think especially like lately I've been trying to I've been trying to deal in a productive way with my anxiety. Like it's always been I've always been very high anxiety and uh I finally actually been going to talk therapy for it and uh, also trying to recognize the ways in which it shapes my life and a big part of it is that I get super anxious if I don't feel like I'm in control of something. And I find too, that often has certain, there are certain positive consequences that come out of it. Like it, it's good for work ethic, but, <laughs> but it, I've also noticed it can be a strain on relationships with people that I'm collaborating with musically or otherwise. This is a song that it, it just, yeah, it feels very real and just the freak out at the end I can relate to it so much. It's also very funny too, you know, she's just like yelling about like, I should do some yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. I mean, I watched some of her videos and like, there is a playful and comedic element, the way she Mm. mugs for the camera sometimes, (laughs) but like, it's also so raw and Mm. honest, this music, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Just her ability to do that is, is, uh, I'm in awe of it. And it's also, like it feels very inspiring too, just also as a musician, because that's something I've been trying to do more lately too, is to be more honest in my songwriting, because a lot of stuff I've done in the past, it's been like, oh, I'm going to be more cute and jokey than I am actually like revealing an emotion, uh, at least in, in terms of my lyrics. The struggle of being honest, <laughs> when like it's very feels like you were losing control of the situation sometimes when you're being honest, I guess. It's really interesting that you're talking about that you find it inspiring and that you are sort of trying to move in that direction yourself. The cathartic model of music where music as sort of purging an emotion, um, whereas the music that you've made has been not necessarily about that or, or has it like, do you, do you sort of put your emotions into your music and then just cloak them in humor or? I, I think I have kind of done that a lot in the past. I, the last EP that I um, recorded, I think, uh, was pretty, pretty raw. <laughs> so that was kind of like my first foray into that. And it almost, it still feels a little embarrassing. It's the funny thing. And I think one of the songs is like a sad song about a Mars rover. So that's pretty like silly novelty in a way, but also kind of like it, it, it goes to an emotional place, but it's not super personal and raw. But like the rest of the tracks are very personal <laughs> and in, in a way that I hadn't before. Do you find performing this new material live more difficult than your old material? Y- yeah, definitely. How is live performing in general? Because you have, you have a performance background, but it's sort of in a group. And when you're in a group, the spotlight is not necessarily on yeah. you. And when I play live... I usually play with a trio. I occasionally do play solo. And I will say it still is even like it does feel a lot easier with the the backing 
band, I guess, that play with a drummer and a bass player. And sometimes I have backup vocalists slash jan- dancers, which is really fun. <laughs> but it's a lot of rehearsals, so <laughs> that's for special shows. Um, but uh, yeah, they're fantastic. Do you, um, do you find Portland fertile ground for a musician? It's a double-edged sword. <laughs> it is very fertile ground in that there's a lot of people making music, a lot of people who are very good. Um, and so it also means that there's just like, there's a lot of competition, <laughs> of course. Um, I do like the fact that like Portland doesn't have a really specific scene genre in the way I think a lot of other places do. And I think a lot of, you know, similar sized cities, although Portland's growing much more. Um, But a lot of sort of smaller cities, I think generally it's like, oh, we have a big hardcore scene or we have a big jazz scene. Um, Whereas Portland is just, there's so many different kinds of music going on, so many different musicians that um, it is a very inspiring um, atmosphere. And I think in general, um, people are pretty open to a lot of different genres of music here in a way that I haven't necessarily experienced in other places. So you're in Portland, you're pursuing various uh, ways of getting your music into the world. Um, You're part of various little creative communities, I suppose, and you're working a office job to pay the bills. Um, that's, that's basically the life. Um, is there anything else from the last few years? You mentioned that you were going to talk therapy and how this kind of relates to the song choice. Um, is there anything else going on in your life around now? I guess that's most of it. <laughs> I can't think of anything <laughs> that's jumping out at me. So you're planning on, you're, you're seeing yourself in Portland for some time. You're not planning a move or anything. Yeah, or, as far as I yeah. can tell. I think yeah. part of it helps that like I have so much extended family here that uh, I've got a lot of roots here. <laughs> um, yeah. Parents still live there? And yes. Yeah, nice. I've got parents, aunts and uncles, uh, great aunt. Um, You're one of yeah. those rare Portland people who actually like is from the the region. <laughs> like you, you had the sojourn in Ohio, but <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny in that like I'm from here, but I'm not from here. I don't know yeah. exactly how to. <laughs> it's how just to put Portland it. is one of those places that a lot of people move to. And I was as you were describing its diverse scene and how it doesn't really have one genre sort of defining it. I was like, maybe it's because people come to Portland from all over, um, and it's. I mean, I, I visited Portland a few times because my husband spent a long time there um, in his 20s. And in some ways, he still thinks of Portland as home. And my experience is when you're meeting, when you're in Portland, it's really unusual to meet someone who's actually from Portland, yes. like grew up there from. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a place, as Chris always puts it, people move to to retire at 23. So, <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know if that's the case now. That was back in the... Yeah, it's a lot too expensive for that these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris moved there, I think, in 99 or 2000. Mm. So um, it was a lot cheaper back then, I yeah. think. Yeah. Hence, hence the full-time office job. That's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How do you see your relationship with music into the future? Part of music and making art in general feels like a compulsion to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which is to say, like, I see myself continuing to do it regardless of any other circumstances. But uh, it's also very uncertain in terms of like, is is it going to be like a career thing? Probably not. I guess that's the other thing with Portland is that it's very much not an industry town. It's more, you know, people go come here to make art, but there's not a lot of avenues for uh, making money from music or art. Things do feel a little up in the air, which I think may also... uh, relate back to the control freak thing in that uh, I do have some anxiety in that. Like I, I'd love to do more with, uh, music and also with visual art, just uh, trying to find the time for it, um, in a city that's expensive and where there aren't a lot of opportunities to make much Mm. money. This is partly a stupid question because the answer is going to be some degree of yes, but do you find the office job takes time and energy away from your creative pursuit? Yes, definitely. <laughs> like I said, some degree of yes is the expected answer. Mm-hmm. You clearly have enough to do it still. It's not enough to kill it, but 
it is yeah. dragging on the heels. Yeah, it's it's a little tricky too because at times when I was unemployed or underemployed, it was kind of it, it was difficult for me to finish projects. And part of it was even just uh, logistical in that, like, oh, my guitar broke and I don't have money to get it fixed or money to get a new amp for my keyboard or something like that. And also just the the stress of like, oh, I have to try and find a job or try and find some way to make money. In a way, just having like the full-time day job gives me a lot of stability, which can be helpful for knowing that I can complete something and and being able to sort of schedule around it. Uh, on the other hand, it is, yeah, it's it's a lot of time <laughs> that I'm doing not non-creative work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And in terms of your consumption of music, um, do you feel any shifts in that or casting into the crystal ball of the future. <laughs> I, I find myself, uh, especially just because there's such, you know, an explosion in available music at this point, I find myself gravitating more toward just listening to local music and going to small local shows. Uh, I guess also kind of hearkening back to the anxiety thing. I kind of don't like large crowds too. So I kind of don't have much fun going to see large touring bands anyway. <laughs> It's just, it's crowded and the long lines. And so I, I really like being able to just go to a local show. There's kind of like two varieties of local shows where bands are playing and no one who's at the bar or venue even kind of knew that a band was going to be playing. And that's always, <laughs> except for like a few people who showed up. It's it's fun for me, less so for the band. <laughs> less so for me when I'm that, and that band. Um, <laughs> what makes it fun? <laughs> it's fun because it is like very, very intimate. You know, there's not mm. not many people there, and it. Um, you don't mind people yelling to each other over the music. <laughs> well, I guess too, like it works best for like louder rock shows. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. where <laughs> you can hear the band just fine, <laughs> even if people are talking. Uh, and otherwise, it shows where like everyone there is there to see uh, either just local music or to see that band in particular as opposed to I think a lot of like is this going to sound really judgmental I think a lot of concert going uh in terms of more well-known bands or even bands that are like kind of underground but have a certain cachet in certain circles um that it's very status-based you know Uh, and so it's like oh i took a selfie of myself at this concert so you know that i like this band and so i have this particular cultural capital because of it as opposed to like oh i'm actually going to listen to this music because no one really knows this band (laughs) uh do house shows still happen in portland oh yes it's kind of surprising. I I go to a lot fewer of them just because it feels pretty awkward at my age. <laughs> I always kind of there's some living room shows that I think uh, for acoustic music that feel a little more uh, in my age range <laughs> that I go to sometimes. <laughs> but a lot of house shows are you know still basement punk shows, um, which are very fun, uh, and even you know just basement um, all kinds of genres. To be uh, to be honest, although there's usually at least one. <laughs> a fairly hardcore sounding band and and they're very fun but it's also something that yeah it feels a little awkward though it feels like this is for the kids because i show up and i keep thinking everyone's wondering whose mom showed up to the show. <laughs> <laughs> i think that probably does it was there anything else that you hope we might talk about during our conversation not that I can think of. <laughs> but hopefully, spirit of the staircase will gonna... strike. <laughs> Hello, listener. Future Michael here. The spirit of the staircase did indeed strike because apparently I was enjoying the conversation so much that I forgot at this point that I was recording a podcast. I turned off the recording without thanking Allison, or asking her where people can find her music, or anything. So, thank you very much to my guest, Allison Dennis. It was an absolutely delightful conversation. You can find Dr. Something on Bandcamp. That's D-R-something. No dot. She's also on Twitter with the same handle, and her site is drsomething.com. Dr. Something. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. 
Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. This week, I was a guest on Megaphonic's newest show, The Scene of the Scene, where myself, Chris, and Daniel discuss the musical Fun Home. Check it out. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 11. That's the numeral 11. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing. I hope you've enjoyed today's musical journey. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 